This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to talk about uh, two issues today, about first harnessing uh, science to create change. And really the issue here is what, what can we do in order to create change and how can we make better use of our science in order to accomplish that Then I'd also like to talk about a World Food Policy Center that we're creating at Duke University, not to talk about the center so much, but more the concepts that underlie its creation. And I'd like to address this issue about why should we care about a broader set of food policy issues rather than the one we happen to be talking about today. And so this begins with a discussion of how good are we really at creating change. Uh, at, At the heart of most research, and a lot of us are involved in research, we hope to create impact from knowledge. And so we produce knowledge that we hope will serve society, but the question is, does society really get served by the work that we're doing? And how tight is that connection between the research and social and policy change? And so the question is, what's in the middle there that makes uh, science have impact in some cases and not in others? And it's really in that space that I'd like to have a little discussion today. This is born partly from my own frustration um, about work in the field that I've been in for many years. And the frustration came about from the realization that research tends to reach pretty small audiences. Most academics are publishing research read by a relatively small number of other academics. That number can be discouragingly small. Um, We lead ourselves to believe that it's greater impact than it really has because that small group of people reinforce each other by citing each other's work, inviting each other to meetings, doing things like that, but in fact the audience of people in a position to do something about the problem can be very small. And hence research often misses small audiences and that leads to poor links of scholarship with policy. And in fact if you think about the way academics define impact, it's how much other academics cite your work. Well if you're thinking about broader uh, effects on the world then that sort of impact isn't necessarily so meaningful. And the metaphor I use to describe this process is that we do the work and we drop the baton like a runner would drop the baton in a relay race. So if you're running a relay race, in order to complete the race and possibly win, you have to successfully pass the baton from one runner to the next. And if you drop it, you're disqualified. So in academics, we do our research and then there's this hope that there's this mysterious force out there or mysterious people that will somehow grab the scientific baton from us and do something with it. And that's what will create the impact. But it's an imprecise process. It's not one we're trained to accomplish, not one we're reinforced for doing in our academic worlds. And so it doesn't happen very often. Sometimes we get in our own way. So let's just say that it was our task to make science as least least relevant to the world as possible. Well, what would we do if we wanted to accomplish that? It's a preposterous premise, but let's just say we were wanting to do that. Well, we would make it extremely slow. It would take a long time to get funded to do the work. We would take a long time to create the work and carry it out. It would take a very long time to get it peer-reviewed and then even longer to get it published. And so at the same time the world is moving at warp speed, we're moving at a very slow speed. We would communicate it poorly and only with a small number of others, as I talked about, It would be unresponsive to real-world problems because other scientists are defining what is important, not people out there in the world in a position to do something. 
It would be only programmatic and not strategic. I'll talk more about that in a minute. There would be conflicts of interest galore. Um, Alyssa referred to that, and Neil Baer did as well. And we would create indecipherable jargon that we would use with each other, but it would be hard for the outside world to understand this. So I think about my own field of psychology, for example. Uh, we uh, created the term symptomatology to describe what the word symptoms would have been just fine to, to, to do. So in fact, we do all these things, and it makes it difficult for our work to keep pace with the world and to have impact. So recognizing these things led me to try to and others who working with me tried to think of better ways to link scholarship with policy. And it began with thinking this way, that if we're doing research and we hope to create change in several domains, we want to certainly create interactions with other scientists, but also social and policy change can be important. And it seems to me that we're good at doing one, but not very good at doing the others. So thinking about ways to make our work matter makes us want to think a lot about what's in this box in the middle there and what's necessary to create impact from the work. So the model that we have uh, created over the years that we refer to, refer to as strategic research looks like this, that you hope the research can influence, and you can fill in the blanks there, a number of parties, institutions, or players uh, in ways that in turn will create social and policy change. So using this um, for childhood obesity, let's say, or obesity overall, you might think about legislators as an obviously relevant group. Regulators are very important. People at the FDA, USDA, and the state versions of these kind of agencies are very important. The courts can be incredibly important. We have to look no further than tobacco to see that. Uh, the press can help change public opinion. NGOs are very involved in these things. And, of course, industry is an important player. So can we interact with these players in ways that create more relevance for our research? Or, other words, can we create this virtuous cycle of solutions that begins with trying to identify people or institutions in a position to do something about the problem we care about? That group is almost never fellow scientists, but it's people outside our world. Then from those interactions, we can develop strategic questions that help inform our research. We then can do the research, then develop a, a broad and effective communication strategy, hopefully, and feed that information back to the change agents, and this is the virtuous cycle that we're talking about. So this model, and I'm going to give you some examples of this in just a moment, but this model is captured in this paper that Christina, Roberto, and I wrote on strategic science uh, in the hopes of creating policy impact. And if you'd like, I'd be more than happy to send you a copy of that paper, but it's available from The Lancet. So what does this all mean in real life? How does this play out in actual science? Well, I'd like to give you two case examples of this. And the first case example uh, has to do with children's food marketing. When I was at the Rudd Center at Yale University, uh, we did work on, uh, mainly led by Jennifer Harris, our colleague Jennifer Harris, on the marketing of uh, foods to children. And we wanted to see what was being marketed, how much who was being marketed to, and whether there was targeted marketing. And of course the impact on things like food choices and purchases. And the first project we did was on the marketing of breakfast cereals. And as I said, Jennifer Harris uh, took the lead on this. And this, this work, which was followed by work on fast food and then work on sugared beverages, 
and then there have been some subsequent studies to those early ones, uh, is all contained on the Rudd Center website. So think of this. Think of taking uh, breakfast cereals and rank ordering them according to some nutrition profile with the, the cereals that are the worst at the top of the list, the ones with the most sugar, the least fiber, whatever, you know, there's a nutrient index that does this. And then next to it, you put a list of what's marketed most aggressively to kids. And let's see how those two lists overlap. So if you use this nutrient profile index and you create the best, look at the best dozen cereals, that is the cereals with the best nutrition profiles, here's what they are. And if you look at how much marketing is done on TV, through adver gaming, on the, the Internet, and through other youth websites, it comes to exactly zero. Now let's take the worst dozen cereals, and you'll see them named here, and you'll start to see more familiar names, of course. And now let's look to see how much is advertised in those venues, and the number doesn't, doesn't look very pretty. So one wouldn't, one wouldn't think that the cereal industry is intentionally trying to make American children unhealthy and overweight, but if they were, it would be harder, pretty hard to do better than this. Now, when we did this work, we hoped that it would create social change. That is, the public would become aware, leaders would become aware of this practice, and it would put pressure on the industry to do something different. And so we then tried to anticipate what would happen when we released our results. And we predicted that the industry would have a defense to this. And it wasn't too hard to predict what the defense would be because I'd been on TV shows debating these folks. But there also was an interesting paper published by the chief nutrition figures at General Mills and Kellogg's. Now, as you may know, these companies are generally fighting each other, but they came together uh, in order to write this particular document. And here's what they said. They make a three-point argument. One is that breakfast is a good thing. Well, that turns out to be true for the most part. Second is that cereals can be a good way to deliver nutrients. That also turns out to be true. But the third part of it is this. And so what they're basically saying here is that the healthiest cereal in the world isn't going to help anybody if it just sits in the bowl and the children don't eat it. And another euphemism like for this is, well, another statement. Children like the taste of ready-to-eat, which is a euphemism for high sugar, cereals and are therefore more likely to eat breakfast. So the third part of their premise is that the way to get nutrients into kids is to put sugar in the cereals because otherwise they won't eat them. So this seemed like a completely testable hypothesis. Let's see, let's see what we find if we actually do a study. So Jennifer Harris took the lead in doing a study where she randomly assigned children to two types of breakfast where everything else was constant. They could add as much milk as they wanted. They could add sugar if they wanted. They could add fruit, and they could pour as much cereal into the bowl. But one group got a low-sugar version of a cereal, <coughs> for example, just plain cornflakes, and the other one got a high-sugar version of the same cereal. And this study was then published in pediatrics, and what the study found was that the individuals getting the low-sugar version of the cereal had just about the nutrition profile you'd like to see a child have for breakfast. And the ones that took the sugar version, got the sugared version of the cereal ended up with a much worse profile, nutrition profile. And so then when we released the results of our study and the newspapers and networks called uh, the comp companies and the companies had to defend the fact that they were marketing their worst products to children, the companies would say, well, eating breakfast is a good thing and cereals can deliver nutrients 
and kids won't eat the cereals unless it has a lot of sugar, then they would say, well, but Yale did a study that found out that kids will eat cereals with lower sugar, so what in the heck are you doing? And that ended up being an interesting bit of pressure put on the companies. And a short time after our results were published, General Mills, which is the largest seller of, of cereals to children, declared that they were going to reduce the, the cereal, the sugar in their children's cereals by about 25%. Now, we're not claiming credit for this at all because there are a lot of people putting pressure on those companies to do this. But to the extent our results were a player in this, it probably looked something like this, that if we go back to our chart, there was intervention through these particular channels that put pressure on the companies. Now, if we hadn't had a communications effort that got the word into the press, and if we hadn't addressed that strategic question, my guess is that we would have had far less impact than we did. And so we identified the change agents, developed strategic questions from understanding their world, and then doing the research that, that met the need. Case number two has to do with sugar-sweetened beverages, and taxes in particular. And Alyssa mentioned this when she was introducing me. <coughs> so we all know that sugar-sweetened beverages are a bad actor. Uh, people have worked out the biology of this. Uh, David Ludwig has done some terrific work on this topic overall. And so uh, we've been thinking about this issue for a long time. In 2009, a unique opportunity arose because the national and state economies were in a bad way, local ones as well. And because of this, legislators were looking for ways to raise revenue. As a consequence, taxes started entering the system again. So in 2009, we wrote several papers. This one with Tom Frieden, who at the time was a health commissioner of New York City and uh, later the, the head of the uh, CDC. And then a, a subsequent one with other authors, including David Ludwig, making a case for the economic and public health benefits of taxing sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, but here's where the, the strategic research really came into play. One is that um, we are the economist working with us at the time, Tanya Andreeva did a study uh, that looked at the elasticity of soda consumption. So she essentially plotted out how much consumption would change with certain tax changes. So that would help legislators know that if they put in a tax of X amount, it would create Y effect. That turned out to be very helpful. She then did a subsequent study that estimated the revenues that could be generated from a, from a soda tax and created an empirical basis for making this determination. This information then, what was most helpful, wasn't the scientific publications, but the fact that we created a revenue calculator on our website. And this then started getting used a fair amount. And what you can do with this is go in and put in uh, any major city or state a certain tax level, and it will estimate the revenue that could be raised. And it creates a chart that looks like this, in this case using data from California. The most important number here is the one on the bottom right, that if you um, put a tax of a penny per ounce on uh, beverages with added sugar, it would raise more than a billion dollars a year in the state. The legislators uh, found both the elasticity and this number helpful because then they knew what impact the, 
the work would have. And then others, like Steve Gortmaker, took it even further and started estimating the health impact of these particular changes that would occur. So, as Alyssa mentioned, there are now taxes in a number of places around the world, and I'll show you a list of those, but to the extent that work we did was helpful in this respect, it acted through a different set of players, through legislators, through the public opinion, through NGOs, and the reason we addressed those questions that we did is because we were having strategic discussions with the change agents. So the tax picture now looks like this. Taxes have been passed in a number of places around the world, and there are other places that are close. And I have Chicago Cook County crossed out there because they recently repealed the tax that they, that they passed. So I'll link back in just a moment to this idea of strategic science, but we found this very helpful in our work. So what I would urge you to think about in your own work, to the extent this is relevant, is who are the people in a position to do something about the problem you're studying? Is it the press? Do you want to change public opinion? Do you want regulatory agencies to change their actions? Do you want legislators to take action? Do you want lawyers to file lawsuits? There could be a lot of different possibilities, but whatever it is, it begins with a discussion with those people, finding out what information deficits occur in their world. And then, if those questions can be put to a good scientific test in ways that generate the kind of publications that are important for career building and are peer-reviewed, so they're credible, but have impact on the questions that are relevant to the change agents, then I think we can accomplish a lot more rather than using our traditional indices of impact. So we're now applying this uh, model to a center that we're creating at Duke University called the World Food Policy Center. And this center is intentionally more broad than the work that I've done in the past, and I'm hoping to share with you the rationale for that and tell you just a little bit about that center. If you look at world food policy issues, and by world we mean things that are happening two blocks from here uh, to everywhere around the globe, what you get is a policy picture that's made up of a lot of actors doing a lot of different things. <coughs> so for the sake of discussion, we're thinking about four broad categories of world food issues, and they're pretty intuitive. Hunger, malnutrition, food insecurity would be one. Obesity, overnutrition, and chronic disease would be second. The third is a very large um, category of agriculture and environment. And the last is food safety and defense. And the policy picture, that, and, and now these are arbitrary, by the way. You could have two, 10, or 20 categories, but for the sake of discussion, we're using four. And the policy picture is a consequence of all these players acting in some way, and there's a mash that comes out in the middle of all this that is what we see as policy. And sometimes the mash isn't very well done because the players aren't coordinating with one another. That's what we hope to accomplish with our new center, is instead of recreating depth on any one topic, say food insecurity or obesity, we want to be a bridge across these areas. And that, we find out, isn't being done very much around the world and that there seems to be a real need for this. So just to put these things in perspective, 
Uh, we'll, we'll hear a lot more about domestic issues with food insecurity today by people much more expert on this than I am. But if we look at world issues, the numbers are really pretty discouraging with 815 million people chronically undernourished. And what's remarkable about this is that the numbers have been declining for a number of years consecutively, but they've bounced back up. Um, and the, the speculation is it's because of climate change and refugee issues created by civil wars and other, uh, public stri other forms of strife. And if chronic undernourishment is a... And, of course, the, the consequences of this can be devastating to the physical, emotional, and other forms of health of children in particular, but others as well. How much longer can we feed the world, even though we're not doing it very well today? There's enough food now to feed the world, and the fact that we're not is a consequence of political and economic issues. But if you look at expected population growth, then there are very real questions about whether we can continue to feed the world, and if we do, at what cost? Is there any way to do this without heavy use of things that degrade the soil, that involve petroleum-based inputs and fertilizers, pesticides and herbicides, even heavier use of GMOs than occurred today, and the like. So there are very real issues about the world's food system and how, longer, how much longer it can hold up under the strain. So it's really important that we get this right. Food is involved in a number of interesting things, and I'd just like to show you some data about life expectancy differences. Uh, from two different places in the country. These are data on life expectancy by zip code in neighborhoods of Chicago. And here you can see people separated by only four miles have a 16-year difference in life expectancy. Now, many reasons for this, of course, and I could only name a few, but poverty, lack of access to education, health care, and the things like this are all very important. But food has to be a part of this. And you can imagine the people in the southernmost neighborhood here having both more food insecurity and more obesity than the people in the area in downtown Chicago. So getting food right is important for the environment. It's important for lots of different things, including human health. Here's another example of this in North Carolina, where there's a seven-year difference uh, going from county to county, going from east to west. And so... Here's um, the way this map looks. You begin at Raleigh in the uh, sort of Piedmont area of North Carolina, and as you go east, you can see life expectancies uh, declining in a pretty uh, reliable way. As you go east, you get into more agriculture areas, so at the same time, there's more and more food as you go from east to west, or west, west to east, rather you get um, more food problems like obesity, diabetes, and food insecurity. And if you calculate some numbers and you're, you're doing this driving, basically life expectancy is uh, declining 256 days for every 10 minutes you drive. And so getting food systems right is a very important thing. And the question is why, why should we care about this? Uh, well, because we're talking about food insecurity, why should we care about agriculture and why should we care about food safety? Why should we care about obesity for that matter? Well, because they're common drivers of these things and if we get control over the common drivers, it's possible we might get winds across different areas of food supply. And just think, for example, about the relationship of food um, malnutrition or hunger uh, called stunting in many parts of the world and how that puts individuals at risk for obesity and diabetes later in life. So these areas are all affecting one another. What goes on with food insecurity 
has an impact. So, for example, food banks often uh, register their impact by how many pounds of food they, are, are they deliver to people. Well, a case of soda looks pretty good uh, using that kind of a metric. So, yes, it may help with calories and food insecurity, but not with the obesity part of things. Um, the, the raging debate about whether SNAP recipients should be permitted to use their benefits to buy things like sugared beverages is an interesting example, pitting the public health and hunger communities against one another. So moving on to agriculture and environment, there are a lot of reasons one might care about this. I'll just quickly talk about two. So water. By 2030, half the world's population is expected to be in severe uh, areas of water stress. Where's the world's water being used? This pie chart shows that the vast majority of it is being used for agriculture. And of course, what's created in the agriculture has a big impact on the water usage, some things being more intensive water-wise than others. This chart shows the number of gallons of irrigated water it takes to create one kilogram of four different foods. If you create corn, 172 gallons of irrigated water is necessary for a kilogram of corn. If you go to snap peas, you're up by four times the original amount. If, you use, if you're creating pork, it goes to that, and if you're creating beef, it goes to that. So if people are eating meat, it has a whole different water calculus than if we were eating the grains that might have fed the cattle. So meat consumption becomes very important for water. And I'll loop back to why this might be important for us to think about today. If we think about climate change, you get this reciprocal interaction of agriculture and environment. And here is one example of the impact of agriculture on environment. <coughs> with agriculture being an important contributor to climate change. This chart's from the United Nations, and it shows where wheat grows now in North America and where it's expected to grow by 2050. The orange crosshatch bars show where wheat grows now, from Oklahoma, Texas, up into that narrow band in southern Canada. But look at 2050, which are the blue hatch bars. The only wheat that's expected to grow in North America will be in northern Minnesota and North Dakota. Profound change in the agricultural landscape. And if you take this crop by crop around the world, country by country around the world, what you see is this enormous impact on the world's agriculture landscape. This will mean that there will be important shifts in migration patterns, in water usage and other things. So again, why should we care about these things? Because there are common drivers of obesity, food insecurity, and other food issues and it's possible with these areas working together, you could create broader coalitions of people working together on a common cause. Back to the climate change, some of you may be aware of this landmark report by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN that looked at the impact of animal agriculture, just animal agriculture, on greenhouse gases. And they calculated that the greenhouse gases just from animal agriculture exceed those from all forms of transport around the world, all the cars, trucks, buses, planes, etc. And if you go back to the water issue, now we're talking about meat overall, plant-based diet would use this much water for an individual per day. If you go to a meat-based diet, it's 15 times the amount. So animal agriculture is contributing to climate change, it's contributing to water shortage, and of course it's contributing to poor human health because of the saturated fat intake. What's happening to meat consumption around the world? It looks like this. 
The U.S. is the blue line, the China is the red line, and you can see how meat consumption is increasing so dramatically in those countries. So as a, um, uh, as a discipline, we're focused on certain parts of the diet, say sugar. Uh, but what, would it make sense, for example, to put some focus on meat consumption? Well, why would that make sense? Well, there's the science of what meat might be contributing to ill health, obesity, and the like. But that's separate from the political considerations that you've got a whole world of people that care about water who might be on your side if you start dealing with meat. You've got a whole group of people that work on climate change that might be on your side and might form a broad coalition. And you could say that to the extent we can establish the, the, the policy mandates around these issues, better foods in schools, advertising restrictions, taxes on things, and you have a bunch of allies to push a particular policy agenda, you might be able to accomplish more than just going where the science leads you on terms of health and a particular nutrient. Now, that's a very important strategic question that the field would have to address. I'm not necessarily recommending that, but it looks, it's looking at things a little bit differently than if all you did was looked at one slice of the food picture. So the problem, as I mentioned before, is that you had disconnected and uncoordinated food policy because all these players are acting in an uncoordinated way, and you end up with whack-a-mole policy, where somebody gets the attention of legislators, there's a victory, but the moles pop up in other areas. And the question is, who's watching over all this? Well, you can think, that, is the CDC watching it? Well, they do parts of the picture, but not all of it. You can look at the USDA. <coughs> they kind of do all these things, but if you talk to people that work there, they say that the people that work on one topic don't talk to the people that work on others. You can think about the, the FAO as one possibility, but there's always something missing, and you're probably getting the picture here. The foundations, there are certain things they do, but not others. And so that's why we are creating a World Food Policy Center that is meant to specifically bridge these areas. And we're hoping to gather expertise and to gain, bring stakeholders together in order to create a new form of dialogue that just isn't existing out there now very much. And we want to apply this model of strategic science back into this World Food Policy Center idea. And here are some of the things that we're planning to do as part of this, um, including a lot of work around innovation, human-centered design applied into this area. And I'll just end with one more thing. We're going to be working with the city of Durham and at least one North Carolina rural county to see about creating a model food systems community. So the question is, can you take one place in the country and try to get everything right, bringing together all these areas, bringing together the players, and trying to have a coordinated approach to policy? So I want to thank you again for having me here at this meeting. I think it's going to be a great meeting. I'm happy that I can contribute to the discussion. And I very much look forward to working with the rest of you. And uh, good luck. I hope you have a great day. My name is Janet Leader, and I'm here at the School of Public Health at UCLA. And I'm hoping that someone is here from Mazone. Um, anyone here? Oh, anyway, so um, Mazone, oh, hi, <laughs> is, is in the process of um, looking at the um, policies. Can I say this? <laughs> of of uh, food banks nationally. And, and I used to work at a food bank, and I just want to 
say that that whole idea of, you know, the soda, certainly it weighs a lot, is rapidly yes. changing. And I, I hope that, that that's uh, something that you're aware of because food banks have such a huge impact on people's uh, diets nationally. And um, like here in California, there's been a tremendous push to get the uh, uh, farm-to-table um, impact buying that food that would normally be not sold or dug under or sold to pig farmers to uh, clients out in the field. So I just wanted to point that out Thank in you. defense of that because you're right, that soda weighs a lot, but a lot of food banks are now rejecting that Yes, soda. thank you. I, I should have mentioned that myself, and I'm glad that you brought it up. There was a recent uh, report about the Food Bank of Washington, D.C. having uh, really good nutrition standards, and I, I realize that that's happening in a number of places, and I agree it's a very positive development. Thank you. Hey, good morning, Doctor. Thank you for your lecture. Um, I'm interested in becoming involved in the World Policy Food Center um, from a business standpoint. I actually represent a brand of unrefined sugar, and kind of our approach in all of this is working with a lot of the food manufacturers who, where sugars, refined sugar is ubiquitous in so many of their products, to work with them to simply replace in a lot of their future recipes um, a more natural product and to help that bring down the glycemic index and calorie count and things of that nature. And I'd be interested to see if some of our work could help contribute to the World Food Policy Center um, and see if there's an opportunity to perhaps make that introduction. Thanks. I'd welcome the opportunity to learn okay. more. Yeah. And, and you've, um, you've reminded me of something that's very important in the work we're doing in, in Durham, for example. We're going to be trying to create a model food entrepreneurship community. And what we hope is that there can be angel funding and uh, incubation infrastructures to help people that have ideas about new businesses regarding food to come in and do, it, do them there because there's a lot, of, lot, awful lot of creativity and ingenuity out there that could be applied into this area, and what you're talking about is one example of that. Great. All right. I, thank you. I'll come connect with you after. Thanks. So is there a downside to an immediate policy change, which I know isn't going to happen anyway, but I just want to know, if SNAP suddenly was no soda, no sugar-sweetened beverage, or processed sugar-sweetened beverage were taken off of the allowable purchases. So it's an issue that requires a great deal of thought. David Ludwig and I wrote a paper together on this um, that outlined our thoughts. Um, what I, I'm not sure what the best policy is here at the end of the day. What I'm regretting is the fact that early in this discussion, the public health obesity community got at loggerheads with the hunger community, and there's a complete paralysis now. Nobody's doing anything on this other than little efforts here and there. Whereas if the parties had been talking early on, you could have done a pilot test, you could have done some research to help address the concerns of both areas, and then it's possible that you'd have a constructive approach to policy now, but that just doesn't exist. And so we're hoping that that bridging that we're trying to accomplish will bring together players to avoid those kind of problems in the future. Hey, Rob. Kelly, <clears throat> uh, you and I both uh, went down to Mexico to uh, help them jumpstart their soda tax. And one of the things they told me, and one of the things the industry has told me directly to my face, and I'm sure they've told you, it's only about the money. It's only about the money. <clears throat> Came out straight and said, we don't care how many lives are in the balance. It's only about the money. My question is, what 
do we have to do on our side to be able to make that case? Or can we even make that case when the other side is actually being paid off? Right. And uh, are there other <coughs> stakeholders that we haven't even, you haven't even put in there, like, for instance, banks, like Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse? Right. Um, you know, Rob, you raise a very interesting question, and, and I'm not sure I would have all the answers, and it would take a long time to tr try to formulate something for that, because it, it really is a very interesting and complex issue. But what I would say is that here's another example of the opportunity for strategic science, that, you know, who are the stakeholders who will make these decisions? What's motivating them, and how can we provide information that will be helpful to them? And so for legislators where the money is the, the key driving factor, then we can work on that. Uh, if public health is the motivating factor for others, we can provide data on that. Um, you know, you reminded me of this. This is going to seem off task, but it, uh, you reminded me of a strategic study that somebody other than, than we did. It was in Vermont where they were considering a statewide soda tax. And the opponents of it were saying, well, people are just going to drive over to New Hampshire and buy all their soda. So some people at the University of Vermont did this very clever study where they just went and interviewed people who lived near the border and said, how far would you be willing to drive if you could save this much money? And what they found is it was a pretty small number of people right on the border who would actually be fleeing across the border to buy their soda. And it would have no public health impact at all, and it wouldn't undermine the impact of the tax. So that would be an example of a strategic question that was important in that particular area. And Mexico would have its own set of strategic questions. So that's why the fact that you and others are involved in these discussions can help turn up a lot of good things that scientists can do to help inform the debate. And that's where I think we'll get the real impact. Okay, I guess we have time for one more. Hi, uh, thank you for this opportunity. I happen to have a friend who used a week program. I'm sorry, would you mind speaking up a little? Um, I happen to have a friend who used WIC program, which is women, infant, and children. Yes. So they can only buy certain food to get the food. And some of the food are really high in sugar, like the yogurt that is allowed. It has enormous amount of sugar. And according to WIC, that's a healthy yogurt, but it's really not. And also they give them 100% or uh, or in, I mean, fruit juices, which are very high in sugar. Those are the things that I increase the chance of obesity, especially to the community that depends on that kind of uh, food. Uh, yes, I agree. That's, those are important issues. And the broader question here is what can government do to help with nutrition in the context of public health? And, you know, it's, it's very interesting to think about the public health um, history of advances on things like tobacco and auto safety and those kind of things. And it's pretty easy to get discouraged with what's happening in Washington now, especially when they've made explicit statements about not wanting to tackle things like childhood obesity. And that's why work at state and local levels is even more important at the moment, to provide a model for what the, the, ultimately the federal government might do and changing those nutrition standards, not only for uh, the, WIC, the WIC program, but possibly for SNAP and for the child and adult care, you know, food program, all those sort of things are really very important. So I agree. It would be great if government policy could line up around public health policy and that we had all parts of the food system working together. And that's one of the things where we're hoping to contribute to the discussion.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.